Our world today seems to be overwhelmed with mean-spirited rhetoric, frightening fear, disheartening doubt. There's much to give us pause, as I've already said, during the, the prayer time, to cause us maybe even to just want to scurry under our, our beds or, or go into our closets or our, our basements and, and hide to avoid not only the bad news that just seems to continually come across our, our screens, but also the, the just angry voices that are so dominant. In light of all of that, I, a sermon titled Unlovable just didn't seem to be the best choice. When I looked at the notes that I'd put together before I went on vacation on Tuesday morning back here at the church, it looked kind of like a, a bag of fool's gold. You remember fool's gold? You know, the miners would go looking for gold and they'd find some shiny rocks and it would kind of look like gold, but then they'd have it tested and it would turn out to be nothing more than shiny rocks. Pretty, but, but useless. Those were my notes on, on Tuesday. And so I, I did what, I, what I'm trained to do. I set aside my original thoughts and I dove deeply into the word, the text that I had chosen for this sermon, Philippians Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. In my office on on Tuesday morning, I read it out loud three times. All of chapter 1, the entire reading. Three times I read it out loud. My assistant, Paul Cutelli, probably thought I was going crazy, but he left me alone. As As I got to the third reading, I noticed when I got to those words, and my prayer for you, I noticed that my voice would go up a little bit. The pitch would go up, and the speed would get faster. That's hard for you to believe that I would talk fast, I know. But my speed would increase, and it, I felt as though there were, it was building to a crescendo. I, I've, I've studied the Bible all, all my life and gone to school for, for all that, but I'm no literary expert. Yet it felt to me as though Paul was really moving the, the readers of his letter, the congregation in Philippi that would receive it, towards this very challenging point. He thanks God for them. He thinks of them with with great joy and and remembrance of who they are. He's probably in prison in Ephesus. That's a city in what is now, an ancient city in what is now Turkey. He's in prison there. And chances are pretty good that the Philippian congregation sent money to Paul's friends in Ephesus to help care for him in prison. You see, in antiquity, when you were in prison, you didn't have a bed. You probably slept on a dirt floor. And you weren't given any food at all. You had to depend on your friends and family to bring you food. And it seems as though, many of the scholars think this, that the, that the Philippian church sent money to the church in Ephesus to help support Paul while he was in prison, to, to feed him. And so you can just feel this joy, this rousing start, this encouraging word. You can, heal, you can almost see the tears in the eyes of the church as they're, as they're hearing from their beloved founding pastor. Every time I think of you, I thank God for you, and the joy you brought to me and to my life. And then, and this is my prayer, that your love may overflow. Overflow with knowledge and full insight. Now think for a moment of the power of his words and what he's he's saying. And consider what he's enduring as he writes these things. Like I said, he's in prison. The the hand that writes the notes is probably battered. There are no doubt on his back bruises and terrible scars from the beatings 
I have no doubt in my mind that his clothing is stained with dried blood. He's not riding from a place of privilege, from the top of a golden tower and a golden chair, dispensing his knowledge to the world. He's riding from a place of degradation. In fact, he even wrote to the church in Corinth and said, from Ephesus also, and said to them, I fear for my life. I'm afraid I might not get out of this place alive. From that place of weakness, he writes these beautiful words for love to flourish. I want you to know, too, that Paul was a political, political prisoner. He'd inflame the, the leading uh, business leaders of the day because the more people turned to Christianity, the fewer money they spent, the less money they spent on the religious idols. One of the primary businesses in Ephesus was silversmithing, the making of idols. As people became Christians, they turned away from that religion and gave themselves more fully to Jesus Christ. They weren't necessarily saying, that's bad. They were just saying, we're going in a new direction. But it just it caused all kinds of political unrest for the early church because businesses were being defeated and, and losing income because of that church. And because of that, anytime you inflame economic issues... In a community, you cause political problems. He was a political prisoner thrown into jail, beaten, as a way of encouraging them to stop their religion. Despite all of this and the overwhelming fear that he must have felt, he prays for the Philippians to experience the connection of head and heart, of love and wisdom, of grace and courage. He's not writing, like I said, from some place of comfort and privilege. There are shackles on his wrists, shackles on his ankles, holding him down, keeping him in place, trying to teach him a lesson. And yet, he finds the power and the skill to write these beautiful words. You need to know that Christianity during its first 100 years, and really even up to about 250, was constantly being overrun by violence and persecution. There were no democratic governments in, in that day to protect people of faith, Christian or otherwise. Often, when the local or civil authorities didn't like your faith, didn't like the way you practice it, didn't like what the early Christian preachers were, were saying and proclaiming, they locked them up and threw them in jail. It happened all the time. These were rarely theological fights. They were almost always political by nature. Never forget, never forget that Jesus was a political prisoner imprisoned by a political leader. His death was called for by the Roman governor. Never forget. There's an old preacher's proverb that says, whenever you write your sermon, you need to stand up and hold in one hand the Bible and in the other hand the day's newspaper." I, I suppose we'd have to change that proverb today to say, turn on your computer screen and put a Bible site on one side and whatever website you like to read on the other. Maybe put two or three or four so you're getting a variety of views and, and opinions. And then sit down and begin writing, writing your sermon. Well, I think the word this morning, the biblical word, is as clear as it can possibly be for us. It speaks across the centuries to our present day with a clear and concise instruction. Let your love overflow. Another translation says, let your love flourish. Flourish. That is a setting from which Paul writes, this prison, this place where the shackles dominate his body. 
It's not difficult to think that he could have delivered an, an hour-long speech on all the terrible things going on in the world in which he lived and inciting even more fear and anger from the Philippian church. But instead, he writes to them about connecting love and wisdom, about bringing heart and mind together. He wants their, their hearts to overflow with love, to result in an action in what one New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, calls moral discernment. Their love should lead them toward understanding how they can face the world morally. It's not a Pollyannish call to just be loving and not worry about anything. It's not don't worry, be happy theology. I like Bobby McFerrin. I have his CD. In fact, I think I have his record album somewhere. That's how old the music goes back. Don't worry about that. But the point is this text is asking them to do something courageous. He's encouraging them to let their love be informed by the intellect. Doing that takes courage and guts. Doing that in the church means that we have to be willing to look at the issues in our world with open hearts and informed minds. For example, can we look together at the scourge of racism in our country? Can we pay attention and be honest that it engulfs our land it means we have to ask, will fear guide our thoughts or will love guide the way we have this open and sincere discussion? You see, this love, this love that is connected to our minds, does not shy away from hard conversations. It does not avoid telling the truth or listening to each other, engaging in tough topics. This is a love that Fred Craddock says that is willing to, quote, put itself to the test in real-life situations, making moral choices in matters that count. Do you hear how that idea has come up again? This 2,000-year-old word speaks to us today. Here's an example of what, of what Paul is talking about, I think. Scott Clasrud, some of you might know Scott. He regularly attends this service. He usually sits on the left side about where Pat Martin is. Um, see, he's the chair-elect of our, of our congregational board this year. He will begin serving next year, July 1, as the chair of the board. He brought me an article last week from Fortune magazine, and in it there was an interview uh, with Bono, you know, the, the, the lead singer from the rock band U2. Scott and I both share a, a, great, a great appreciation for, for their music. The opening story that Bono shared in this interview was about a concert he played recently where one of the Bush daughters, one of the daughters of President Bush, was sitting on the front row, and when the concert was over, he went down to her and he said, you know, your dad deserves a whole lot of credit, and I'm surprised that he doesn't get any credit for the great work he's done with AIDS and taking care of the scourge of AIDS in our world. And then in the interview, he went on to tell the interviewer, do you realize that President Bush started what was called PEPFAR? And I want to be sure I say this right. It was the president's plan for emergency AIDS relief. President Bush established that in 2003. And because of that, thousands, maybe tens of thousands, I'm a preacher so I can say even hundreds of thousands perhaps, have been saved because of the action that President Bush took on in 2003 partnering with people like Bono, the lead singer from U2, to make this happen. It's estimated, according to this article that I read in Fortune, that AIDS might be eliminated from the world by the year 2030. Think of that. That's 14 years from now. In the 80s, when we first discovered AIDS, we didn't know what to do. It was killing tens of thousands. And now today, we may see it gone in our lifetimes. Bono said in kind of a teasing way, 
but in a beautiful way. If you're an American taxpayer, you're an AIDS activist. And President Bush deserves huge credit for that simple and clear action. Now, I suppose, I'm sure this is true, that we have a variety of views in this church on President Bush and his, his time in office. But there's no doubt that this action 13 years ago led to saving lives. When we, when we talk about these things, we find the courage then to do something about them. Back in 2004, encouraged by the president's action, I stood up in the State of the Church address and, and said to the congregation gathered on that night, AIDS is a terrible scourge not only in the world, but it's horrible, especially in Africa. We have the resources in this congregation to do something. We can't solve the entire problem by ourselves, but we can be part of the solution. We, I'm calling on our church to do something, to take a stand, to make a plan, to move forward and do something. Afterwards, Clayton Hasser, who's a member of our church, many of you may know her, she came to me and said, I love it. I'm inspired. What's your plan? I said, I don't have a plan. <laughs> I said, Clayton, are you inspired? Let's figure it out. She contacted Nancy Lear, another member of our congregation. The two of them began to be in contact with global ministries and to talk with our, the missionary arm of our denomination. They were introduced to Don and John Barnes, missionaries in South Africa. They created a partnership, eventually, with the United Church of Southern Africa, where we went over and served in 2005 and three and four more trips after that to build an AIDS hospice. Today, your church, Country Club Christian Church, continues to serve and partner with an AIDS hospice in the Buffalo Flats Township of East London, South Africa, because a couple of retired women in our church got an idea that we could make a difference. In that AIDS hospice, people are not only dying in a dignified and cared-for way, there are now hundreds of people in that township who are receiving medicines and food and care that they otherwise would not have received because that place is there. You've saved hundreds of lives. I want you to know it wasn't an easy thing to do. I received several anonymous letters and notes telling me that it was a mistake, a waste of money. These people are getting what they deserve because of their actions, that sort of ugly kind of thing. One person did speak to me directly, and he said almost the same thing. It's a waste of money. It's dangerous. Your group's gonna, your, your group, people in your group might die as a result of this. I said, we're not going to have sex and we're not going to use intravenous drugs. We're going to be fine. I said it in sort of a lighthearted -like way like that. He did not laugh. Yeah, it was dangerous. Yeah, it cost some money. But we made a change. So I'm wondering this morning, what would happen if we could apply our same passionate love, deeply curious intellectualism, to the issues of our time. Did you see the video that we posted on Facebook last week of our children who are part of the preschool here? As, as, as a, a reaction to some of the violence going on, the mistreatment of our women and men in uniform who serve as police officers, our school children invited several Kansas City, Missouri police officers to come here to meet them, and they brought their cars, and they had their lights on. They blew the sirens a couple of times. It was fun. And then the children lined up. Go look this up on our Facebook page. You can scroll down and find the video. The children lined up, and with African Americans and whites, men and women, officers in blue, their teachers, they sang God Bless America. Go, go watch it. 
have some Kleenex nearby because it was a beautiful symbol of our country and the beautiful prayer that that hymn is, God bless America. Is there any of us who would not want to pray those words? Of course not. It was a sign and a symbol of the way we can care for each other. Maybe you heard President Obama's eulogy, the one that he delivered in honor of the officers killed in Dallas. He said, and I'm quoting, can we see in each other a common humanity, a shared dignity, and recognize how our different experiences have shaped us? If you want to see what that common humanity looks like, go watch that video. You'll see it right there. President Obama also made it clear that violence is never the answer. He said, there is no possible justification for these kinds of attacks or any violence against law enforcement. As I said a moment ago about President Bush, I suppose the same is true about Mr. Obama, that we have a variety of views in this congregation, a variety of understandings of, of his work as our president. But his words were clear. There is no justification for violence. None. And so thinking about that, what would happen if we in this congregation could take on a topic that I think in some ways is more difficult, tougher to talk about, tougher than violence, harder than the HIV AIDS crisis? What would happen if we could bring our hearts and our minds to a conversation about racism. If we could sit together, honestly, openly, acknowledge this scourge in our land, what can our church do today to fight racism in our country, our state, our city, our neighborhood? What could we do? You know, I want you to know that I've been stopped. Well, I don't want you to know, but I'm going to tell you. I've been stopped many times, too many times, by police for minor traffic violations. Okay, maybe I was going too fast, but nonetheless, in those stops, not a single time have I felt nervous or afraid that something other than a ticket was going to be given to me. My African-American friends here in Kansas City will tell you their experience is completely different. I could line them up for you here. And I could, I could let them speak. They could demonstrate what is very true for them. I have a friend who's an African-American preacher out in Ohio. He and another friend of mine, who's a white preacher from nearby, were scheduled to speak at a, a rural church in the hills of Appalachia. They were traveling down this winding road when they were pulled over. My friend, the white pastor who was driving, was upset. He looked down and said, I'm not speeding. I'm not, I'm behaving. I, what's going on? My other friend, who was the black preacher, was sitting in the passenger seat. He already had his hands up on the dashboard. And he said, be calm and be quiet. The police officer came to the window. He said to the driver, I don't recognize you boys. Where are you from? What are you doing over here? Sir, we've come to preach at the church just down the road. I see. All right. We all be careful. And he walked away. I'm pretty sure that's illegal. It's true. And it happens every day. 
So what can we do? Well, I've sent some letters and emails to leaders in the community. I've reached out to friends and colleagues in African-American churches. I'll continue to do what I can as your pastor, as leader of this church. But like Nancy Lear and Clayton Hasser 12 years ago, what can you do? What ideas do you have? How can your overflowing love, filled with knowledge and insight, be put to use? The time for sitting around and waiting for those who are screaming and and pointing towards fear while trying to make us feel better is over. Now is the time for the Church of Jesus Christ to take a stand, to preach the inclusive love of Jesus Christ, to take that word to the streets, knowing that perfect love casts out fear. The time is now. Let's take Jesus. Let's open the conversation. Let's let God's love flourish. Amen.